You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guests are Tom Martin, founder and CEO of Channel Fuel, and Carlos Pacheco, COO of Truly. Tom and Carlos, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Pleasure to be here. This is Tom. Hey, thanks, James. Great to be here. And, and as we jump in, I should mention that you two are fantastic podcasters in your own right as the co-hosts of the Video Insiders podcast. How did you two meet and what gave you the inspiration to start the show? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. Uh, Tom, Tom has a better memory than me, but I think we started talking. To, we, met, we met online, obviously, uh, a few years ago when I was still at Boat Rocker. And um, I think we were dealing with some, some crossover assets or s- something. And I reached out. We, he was still at the BBC. And then we started talking and sort of geeking out on the, on the same industry. And then we ended up meeting at VidCon a couple of years into it. And then uh, we've kept a good relationship since and sort of kept in touch. And we have opinions. <laughs> so we, we wanted to sort of have a, a, a something to talk. And, I don't know, a couple months ago, we were like, let's, let's, let's do a podcast. I think, yeah, so we met at VidCon, and I think we actually spoke about launching our podcast back then. That, was, that had to be 2015, 2016. And it's just taken all of this time for us to find the time in the schedule uh, which is still a problem, <laughs> but um, yeah, this is about a perfect time to get two grizzled industry veterans to kind of moan for an hour on Skype. <laughs> Very cool. And and uh, why a podcast? What do you guys cover on the show? What what served as the motivation for launching a podcast? Um, I think for me, a technical plus is you know, as Carlos said, I've dabbled a bit in doing video, and it's just too much effort. <laughs> it's too much effort. Whereas a podcast, we can pretty much jump on Skype or uh, a, a simple piece of software chat. We've got, we've done some research up front, but we can, you know, um, get our opinions out pretty fast, send that off to an editor and it kind of appears on iTunes and all the beautiful places on the internet. Whereas video is a lot more complex. And also I think we're huge. We're both huge, huge podcast fans. Uh, I personally have been listening to your podcast, James, for years and years and years. So, um, yeah, it's one of the, uh, one of them on my kind of uh, go-to roster of, of podcasts that I listen to. So I think it was inevitable that I was going to launch a podcast at some point and to partner up with someone as knowledgeable as, as uh, Carlos. Uh, not only does it mean it's half the work, uh, it means it's kind of double the experience. So it's a bit of a no-brainer for me, at least. Yeah, same here. Uh, big, big, big fan of podcasts. And I still think it's, it's one of those mediums that um, is – even though gaining in popularity and getting a lot of attention these days is still very undeveloped and uh, underappreciated. And I've always sort of wanted to start one. And then in the last year, I now have two podcasts. Oh, terrific. What is your other show? uh, My other show is called Anatomy of a Strategy. And it's uh, with my my wife, who's the founder of uh, our company. And we talk about the the, the, the DNAs of, of digital strategy from, you know, from content marketing to, 
to anything that's happening in the industry. And also we talk to people in the industry in terms of their expertise and all that sort of stuff. Terrific. Well, I want to hear more about that and more about the work you do at Truly. But uh, before we get there, maybe we can step back and, and talk about how each of you got your start in the media space. Yeah, so um, I worked at um, the commercial arm of the BBC here in London. Gosh, I started back in 2007. Uh, but I worked in the sales department in licensing and distribution. So uh, licensing digital content to you know the Russian equivalent of Netflix and the UAE equivalent of YouTube. So I was always working in digital video for majority of my career and then one day realized how absolutely uh, how much I hated working in sales and a position came up internally to work on a YouTube team but I had zero YouTube experience um, but managed to uh, blag an interview and then at the interview uh, managed to do pretty well seeing as that I knew the content really well I knew the departments really well managed to get a second interview did a really good presentation uh, and somehow managed to get the job I still do not know how I managed it but you know a really kind of pivotal moment in my life to get that job so thrown absolutely straight in at the deep end no one in the team with me that had any experience so people would literally ask me to if they if something was possible I'd google it work it out send them an answer five minutes later so it took me about two weeks to you know, learn the buttons of YouTube. And then really, I've been working every day since then, pretty much every single day of my professional life since then, publishing videos to YouTube for, for other, other companies, whether that's the BBC or later another company called Endemol, uh, who are another large TV production company. And really just using trial and error to work out what gets views on YouTube and what doesn't, because there wasn't that amount of... Um, educational material back in 2012 you know Tim Schmoyer and Daryl Eves they they existed they were they were doing some stuff for like real SEO uh, Mark Robertson's website but there wasn't the depth and breadth of kind of resources available today so it was really just upload thousands of videos and learn the hard way what works and, and what doesn't. And what was it like helping a traditional broadcaster like the BBC embrace this nascent video platform which would go on to essentially change the future of television? Yeah, well, we were. I was. Uh, I was at least very lucky that we got some very big results early on. So, for example, the the Top Gear channel was absolutely in its heyday. That's when Jeremy Clarkson and Co were still on the show, and you know, I took the channel from about seven hundred and fifty thousand subscribers to three million something in just uh, my first twelve months. And you know, and then people started to sit up in in the wider organisation, like oh, wow, that's some really impressive reach for, you know, very little cost. And at that point, then we could start to use that audience that we'd grown to promote the new series. And we did something quite unique at the time, which YouTube then went on to use as a case study, which was we did a kind of live launch of the new series. Uh, we broadcasted it live on YouTube. It was like a, a exclusive live event. It was, was filmed at a BBC venue and we had the whole cast of, uh, top Gear, uh, and it I think it, it led to like the best Top Gear series launch ever. And so from that point on, even though we were still kind of bottom of the food chain, we got a seat at the table pretty much. So um, we went on to, to grow the YouTube network of channels. So it was, uh, you know, uh, 
a profit center that made money for the company, but also as a marketing function. We had massive results launching things like Planet Earth 2, which was just a ridiculously successful launch across YouTube. You may remember there was a really famous scene that we cut, which was um, an iguana being chased by a whole pack of snakes. It was just one of the most amazing clips ever seen on YouTube. And so, you know, we were utilizing, you know, the best moments of TV to launch new series and stuff. So it wasn't like it was a huge, uh, a hugely bolted door to push on, uh, but there obviously were some struggles. TV and broadcast is still king, uh, or at least it was when I still worked at the organization. And so the people that were producing the TV shows really did kind of hold the keys to the kingdom. But we, you know, we did some pretty courageous things. We launched a, a YouTube-only Doctor Who fan show, which was, you know, before the Star Wars show. And we were we were pretty cutting edge, for, especially for a traditional media company. And we were light years ahead of, you know, our kind of, at least uh, competitors in the UK and still light years ahead of what a lot of big media companies are still doing or not doing today. So I'd say there was a lot of red tape, but um, at the same time, we did have some people that were kind of beating the drum for us internally. So yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty exciting time. So, you know, we got to do some pretty cool stuff. And Carlos, you're based in Toronto, but originally started your career in the traditional media scene in Montreal. What was that early experience like? Well, uh, I came to the industry, um, well, after spending many, many years in what we call, you know, sort of traditional marketing. So I spent a lot of time buying those campaigns and, and strategizing those campaigns that influencers now sort of like get this before influencer marketing was a thing. And I fell into, after many years of doing like SEM and search engine marketing and social media buying ads and stuff like that. I was sort of tired and needed a change. Somebody introduced me to, to a person called Andy Nelman, uh, which is one of the co-founders of Just for Laughs in Montreal. And uh, he said that, you know, there was this ragtag team of, of gags producers who had tried something on YouTube. There was some momentum, but they weren't, there was no sort of strategy behind it and gave me the keys and said, hey, go, fix this YouTube stuff. And then uh, basically, I started in this backlot studio production. So I never worked on a network space of things, but more on the on the producer side of things. And I was literally like the cowboy, you know, messing around with things that were pissing off other people, <laughs> because there was a distribution department that wasn't happy seeing videos going on YouTube. But we found a loophole. We found a way to sort of get away with that and not break any contracts that we had with the with our distributors and uh, and networks. Essentially, I brought in my thinking of like how SEO works and how uh, you know how to how to do call to actions and all these little things that you know, that are sort of like uh, DNA of, of marketing and built their Gags YouTube channel from, you know, already a, a pretty decent 300,000 to, you know, 3 million within a year. And then started building on that with creating, you know, a varied amount of YouTube channels for the Just for Last brand. One of the things that I say I say we did innovatively is uh, we quickly saw that, you know, uh, because of the nature of the content, it wasn't just an English audience. We saw that it was a global audience. And how do we reach that global audience is to adapt the content or the 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 metadata so that it would be searchable for, for somebody who's who's French, for somebody who's Italian, for somebody who's uh 
who's, uh, you know, Spanish. And, you know, we were like a two-person team, but we saw that fans were really, really engaged. So we started asking for fans to sort of like help us translate the metadata for videos. And we ended up launching like half a dozen language YouTube channels. Some of them are still active today. And uh, that's something that was like, you know, pretty innovative at that time. And then I moved to Toronto, a, co- a company. One of the things that I really, I got tired of the Just For Last thing is that it was, you know, I was, no matter how big I made the channel and, and even though it became lucrative, it was still second, you know, we were still like the, 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 to this day, I mean, many years later, it's still considered like, you know, just something on the side that's not the main business. So, you know, a company from Toronto called Temple Street at the time, wanted to get into the YouTube space, wanted to get into the almost the MCN space and um, hired me away. And I came to Toronto and we started building that, but quickly saw that, you know, the MCN space was meant for marketing companies, not for production companies. And, you know, we didn't have the staff, we don't have the sales team, all that sort of stuff. And we quickly saw that at the same time, just like Just for Laughs, they were sitting on, you know, rights and for many of their, their shows that they weren't exploiting on YouTube. We set them up as a, uh, as a network to start doing their content ID. And then, uh, you know, a few of their shows were able to create channels very dedicated to their shows. And once again, working around the limitations of the broadcasters in markets that weren't exploited or where the, the, the content was licensed, and, but digital had, had, we had the rights to digital. So, you know, we ended up building a, a YouTube channel for a show called The Next Step, which, again, was underserved by, by the TV networks and, you know, grew into a huge, a huge channel. Well, at least a huge channel compared to nothing. You know, I think it's about to hit 400,000 nowadays. And again, sort of like within, you know, five years, I helped set up, sort of build the foundation of a, an internal sort of like digital distribution department for an exploitation of, of content on YouTube for the company. Very cool. Tom, in January 2018, you took the entrepreneurial leap and started your own business, Channel Fuel. What inspired you to set out on the entrepreneurial path? I'd actually been working towards a, a five-year plan. and I, I probably missed that by about six months. But um, yeah, I remember very, very concretely the day I returned back from... Um, paternity leave when my first son was born and I had like a a 90 minute commute each way to work at the BBC and then my wife was at home and I was like I can't give up three hours of my day every day for the rest of my life so I kind of on that day planned to um, make something for myself at some point although I didn't know what it was at that point but then um, quite early on starting my kind of work uh, YouTube related work for the BBC I realized that was no, there was no kind of one resource like how to do YouTube professionally so I started up a website called uh, FAQ Tube which I no longer run but um, it kind of taught me a lot about networking and it got me onto certain stages and it helped me grow relationships with people like Carlos and Jeremy Vest and Daryl Eve so I ended up speaking at their events and kind of paved the way for me now to be uh most of what I do now is consulting work, my ideal clients being uh, rights holders and media companies, sorry. So I go in and help them set up their systems, get their content ID sorted out, do an audit on their channel, do some keyword research. And then basically I give them a, a kind of turnkey YouTube channel in a box, which they can then give to somebody in-house or hire a junior to to work at. And it's, you know, it's 
eight years of work distilled into a kind of consulting package that I can deliver within a couple of weeks, which will transform a company's YouTube performance, basically, you know. One of my recent com- recent companies that I worked with, I worked with them for just a couple of days a week uh, for about four months, doubled their subscriber count in that four months, almost trebled their YouTube revenues within that within those four months, just, you know, set up all of their systems, you know, it became almost like a copy and paste job to run the channel. So that's now what I focus on. That's, you know, for me, it's, I could do it in my sleep. And it's not it's not complicated stuff, but it's just knowing which levers to pull, which priorities to make for workflows and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of what pays all the all of the bills at the moment. But then I have kind of bigger aspirations. So I've got a course coming out next month about uh, keyword research, which is kind of a process that I've been speaking about at events like VidCon and VidSummit. Uh, it's kind of something that I'm trying to be like the pioneer of and it's, it's something that I use on a, on a daily basis for all my clients uh, but even bigger than that is to put my money where my mouth is and launch some honest to goodness YouTube channels that are going to make me some money for myself so watch this space um, follow along and if I if I get brave I'll reveal the names of some of the channels that I'm launching uh, in, in the next few weeks and hopefully that's really my long-term plan is to make that the main part of the business and um, try and scale down the uh, consulting or, or at least make sure that I'm not the person that's doing all of that kind of data and work on that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I want to hear more about your tips and recommendations for people doing keyword research and, and video optimization, channel management. But uh, Carlos, you've kind of taken a similarly entrepreneurial path uh, working as a partner and COO with your wife, as you mentioned that truly tell us a little bit more about that company and, and what you and your wife are focused on. So uh, while I was working uh, at Boat Rocker, uh, my wife was sort of like a freelance strategist and she was gaining more and more clients. So she decided to build a sort of sort of set herself up, up as an agency. And just exactly a year ago, she's, she's like, hey, Carlos, we're at a point now where we need more help. And, you know, uh, I've always sort of said that one day I'll quit my job and come help her out. And that was sort of the situation. I'm back into the world of marketing, but with a different perspective. We're, we're not in this space to, to waste what we consider is wasted marketing, sort of like generic brand marketing and marketing that gets forgotten once and once the campaign's over. We're bringing our knowledge of building audiences for creators, for media companies to brands and sort of teaching them that, hey, you can spend, you know, like a lesser amount of money on creating content and, you know, creating spaces where that are valuable for your audience and build a relationship with them that they come back and they start trusting you and they, you know, so they, they, they listen to your advice. And, you know, the clients that we work with, we educate them and turn them into Almost, we turn them into online creators. We've had brands that we turned their employees into YouTubers with successful YouTube channels, where you know there's hardly any media buy spent. Where now they're just creating content and they're getting organic uh, views on their videos, on their podcasts, on their on their blog. And same thing with bigger brands, where 
you know, where we've created a website for them or a brand publication. I would say we're more of a digital brand publication agency where we'll, we'll, we'll set up a, a website and we'll set up a publishing schedule and, you know, build an audience for them that is engaged and with content that is valuable as opposed to the typical PR or, you know, uh, big brand messaging. So our, our strategies are much more about building, you know, advocacy and, and, and um, sort of a trust with, the, with uh, the clients that we work with. Terrific. What I love both about your story and that of Tom is that you started as practitioners very early in the space when there weren't good resources about, you know, how to help a traditional broadcaster or rights holder understand the YouTube landscape, figure out the best practices. You, you were working that out for yourselves. And now you've taken that knowledge and you've become educators. You're doing that for brands. Carlos, on your side, you're, you're doing it with uh, your consulting clients, Tom. And it's fascinating to hear what you guys are sharing in the work that you do, but also on the podcast, using that as another kind of medium for sharing uh, what you've learned. Yeah, and I, I actually think this is a growing sector, you know, even, you know, for traditional companies that it's just taking some some companies so many years to get on board. And what I'm starting to see now is that I'm getting contacted on a daily basis for either myself or for me to refer some somebody that can come in and do a good channel management job because there's just not enough people to, you know, to fill that demand of people that have got two years experience of, of channel management under their belt. Even people that have worked at agencies for a couple of years are picking up some bad habits from what I hear. So, you know, there's probably an opportunity out there for some kind of uh, training system or recruitment system for kind of what me and Carlos did for those traditional companies, which is just to be a professional level channel manager. And um, it's a need that's growing. It's a skill set that's rare, especially, you know, to the level of me and Carlos and the years of experience that we've had, including like, you know, knowing how to deal with content ID and claiming as well as audience development and stuff like that. So I, I only see it getting bigger and bigger. For those new to the world of YouTube optimization, channel management, audience development, what are some strategies that you would recommend? Um, for me, it all comes down to kind of consistency. So it's consistency of, of, the, of the topic that you're posting about. Um, so whether it's one TV show or if you're doing like a how-to channel, just be a, a subject matter in, in one subject. Don't try and please everyone because you'll end up uh, pleasing no one. Secondly is consistency of publishing. So you need to be able to show up pretty much every single week for years to come and still expect no one to listen. And then thirdly is consistency of metadata. So, you know, you can make the best videos in the world, but if you're not optimizing them for the platform uh, and for what the platform needs and uh, for what the platform wants in terms of tags, titles, and descriptions, then you're just not going to get discovered in the first place. So for me, it's the three C's, all of which just happen to be consistency. Yeah, I, I can't sort of like argue at all with what Tom's saying. It's totally exactly what, what needs to be done. And at the same time, like it's focus, like it's just staying focused on, on the message and maybe not thinking about like, oh, how big can I get? And just making sure that you're bringing the right audience to your content. And, you know, it, every single platform is sort of has in a way closed the doors to cross-pollinization uh, over the last few years, Facebook doesn't want you to get off Facebook. Twitter doesn't want you to get off Twitter. 
uh, Instagram and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, YouTube's become its own ecosystem and you need to find that audience on the ecosystem. Yeah, if you want one real actionable step, like an act, like what is one thing that can really move the needle more than anything, I'd say it would be increasing your watch time. So like if you can, let's say you, you are, for example, a TV show company, uh, you know, making compilations and stuff like that. So going from three minute clips to 11 minute episodes to one hour omnibus compilations that's really what's going to move the needle for most media companies and rights holders and obviously both of you have focused most of your career on youtube and thus that's what we've centered the discussion on uh today but but carlos uh, you mentioned facebook and instagram the fact that these other platforms tend to operate as closed ecosystems. What experience do you have working in some of these other social media platforms? And, and what do you recommend for brands or media companies that are new to social in terms of setting out their strategy? The main sort of like the, the sort of tentpole strategy when it comes to all these platforms is bespoke content, is creating the content for that platform instead of constantly sort of adapting uh, one specific video or, you know, you remember, you know, we were, there was still time to this day, brands still just create content for TV and just, you know, adapt it and just sort of recut it for YouTube. We're at a time now where each platform has its own video ecosystem, you know, you're talking from stories to Facebook watch to Twitter live and all that sort of stuff. They're all behaving differently and they're all sort of like want people to stay on their platform so the and the only way to sort of like play within that ecosystem and play with it within those algorithms is to create content that is very native to that platform you know like you're not going to put an ad in in a you know the ones that put ads or traditional advertising into Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat stories don't do well versus people who will create original content for those platforms and maybe, you know, promote that content. But as long as it's original and, and sort of feels native to that platform. Literally this weekend, we released a, a podcast where we talked to a UX designer where we talked to a UX designer who's, you know, traditional, you know, who's very traditionally uh, trained, but he's always experimenting with social and he, he decided to, you know, which is foreign to his industry. He decided to do a TikTok video, uh, and experiment in that. And he did a, a really great video of him running, uh, in his bathroom. And, uh, you know, it was totally like, you know, it's weird sort of video and it went viral and it's like, he's like looking at this and he's like, wow, you know, like this content is, you know, when you make it the way you're supposed to make it for these platforms, it really works. And it sort of gave him this lesson of like, hey, you know, like you, know, every, you need to adapt your content to the platform and the audience that's consuming it. And that's essentially what our, we, we try to instill into all our, uh, all our clients. I'm curious to get both of your takes on TikTok. Uh, we've been hearing a lot more about it. It seems to be continuing to gain more traction here in the US. What is the opinion of the platform in Canada and the UK? Yeah, so I remember once we commented that we were going to do a, an episode of our podcast called Old Men React to TikTok. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I saw recently, I think it was even today on LinkedIn, it said something like uh, it had the most app installs in the first quarter, I can't remember if it was the last quarter of 2018 
on our first quarter of 2019, but I'm not surprised because at least here in the UK, you cannot move for seeing paid advertising for TikTok. They're absolutely, YouTube uh, must be licking their lips at the, the ad budget being spent to, to promote TikTok. When it was musically, I was really, really skeptical. Uh, kind of thought it might be just for the, the youngsters. They've probably, you know, stepped up a stepped up a gear, stepped up a level. I'm still very, very hesitant that it's a place for big brands to live uh, as their own entities. I think it's probably a great place for influencer marketing and getting um, eyeballs on people's brands and products, but probably not from like, a, you know, the Johnson and Johnson account. They're going to be much better off going to God knows, you know, some twelve-year-old twins that uh, um, you know that are probably the biggest thing on TikTok and getting them to show their products. But I just I shudder at the thought of you know big giant media and brands sitting around trying to come up with a TikTok strategy. It's just it's probably a very very easy way to burn through millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, one my my perspective right now with this is that first off. It's a very young audience, uh, so meaning like the age demographic is is really young. So it's not everybody that needs to go on that. In terms of content production, like when we talk about you know uh, companies that have content, I don't think it's a place for anybody who's just wants to dump content. It's definitely a place for original content. And you know it's it's the next generation of viners, right? At the same time, like but. You know, the way I'm seeing it is there, you know, where Vine was this happy accident. This one is like, seems like, you know, the people who are getting famous on it are sort of intentionally doing it or like, there's just not a, I don't know, there's like, there was this, and again, maybe it's because I'm old and I'm, I'm a purist, but it's like, Vine felt like a happy accident. Like it was sort of like everybody just like, oh, wow, this is happening. Whereas TikTok feels like everybody got straight to business right away and tried to create like they're they're trying to turn themselves into TikTok influencers right away. And it's, you know, and and again, I'm not the age demographic. So I know that, you know, there's uh, uh, millions of kids out there who are loving it. And it's, it's a very positive platform. That's one of the comments that I've heard is that it's less, you know, where we're stuck in social media that ha- is sending a lot of negativity out there. So the positivity is a very, uh, is a very good thing for the platform is getting everybody to jump on board. The, 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 the brands that are going to get on it are going to have to be very specific brands. It's not going to be everybody that can go on it. I think the smart thing to do from a brand perspective, from a content creator perspective, is just to keep experimenting and see how it goes. My initial thought also was like music rights. <laughs> and like, you know, people using music on video means that the company is, the company that owns that thing is making, is paying a crap load of money to the music owners. And um, I have a friend who actually works at TikTok and she specifically told me that the company prefers it when you're not using licensed music in your videos. Because obviously, just guessing from that feedback, I'm thinking, hmm, you know, uh, you know, as soon as you use a licensed piece of music on any piece of content, the music right owners are knocking at your door getting for a piece of that pie. It's going to be interesting to see how TikTok evolves over the next little while and how they make money. Because it's definitely not a money maker for the company. 
True. And and TikTok has been in negotiations with many of the major record labels who are looking for a larger paycheck than they received, you know, in the past few years, which is a similar approach to what Facebook has done, which is essentially writing a big check to the labels in order to avoid or eliminate any issues with clearing music and, uh, you know, ensuring accurate use of music rights on the platform, which is quite the alternative to what YouTube has done, where it said, you know, we're, we're just going to help facilitate this. You can claim people that uh, use your music improperly through the system content ID. Uh, wh- where do you think these new social platforms will net out? Will they need to adapt and adopt some sort of system similar to content ID in order to appease the music rights holders? Oh, man. Um, you know, we've seen how well music rights do with content ID. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's uh, you know, YouTube has done in a way well because it, it's a tools, pl- you know, it creates tools for these rights owners that's what it, it does best. The way these platforms are done, they're not like Google, so they tend to control everything. Uh, so they're going to have to pay up. Um, even though, you know, from a music perspective, and you know, that's something I didn't mention. From a music, uh, you know, somebody who wants to market their their music, their album, like TikTok is like the perfect platform. I think I saw last week that was like there was like a big artist, and again uh, the name escapes me, but the artist was sort of the first artist to launch themselves on TikTok, and it makes total sense. This is a godsend to the music industry. The best way to get a song heard is to get it being featured on TikTok, and I'm sure there are some smart people in in at the companies figuring out ways to to get the music labels to spend money and also pay them out money. So there's uh, two sides of that one. Yeah, but I, I, I agree. But also look how long it took them to, to kind of get on board with the idea of something like Spotify or what now is Apple Music and Google Play Music and everything is what makes logical sense doesn't always kind of feed through into you know uh, the workflow of these big companies, especially the record labels who are probably the most, apart from YouTube itself, are probably the most powerful players on YouTube are the, are the music labels. They seem to have the most tools, the most leverage. Uh, and so I think these um, these new upcoming platforms are going to have to pay out because the record labels are by far the most litigious of all the groups of people that are, that are operating in this space. So it's you either pay up or you're going to get a huge lawsuit <laughs> coming at you pretty soon. I was speaking to somebody who's launching a, a whole new platform soon. And I, my first question was, okay, what's your equivalent of content ID? And uh, there was an answer, but I was kind of thinking you need a more robust answer because these, you know, the labels are not going to be happy with, oh, don't worry, we'll take it down. You know, they're not. that's not going to be enough for the labels who are just so aggressive in uh, in in hunting down their their slice of the pie, basically. What's coming next? If if both of you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? Uh, me, I think that my biggest prediction for this year was that YouTube would lean more and more and more towards TV content and movie content. Uh, without a doubt, that's been coming more and more true as the years got this year has ticked past. I think it was a week or so ago there was an article, or I'm thinking it was The Verge on TechCrunch maybe, saying they were about to launch a new metric which was quality watch time. Uh, and again, this just points in the direction of being more favourable to the 
you know, the Jimmy Fallons and the BBCs of this world and less and less on content which is user generated and almost by default less brand safe. So, you know, it's really about paying service to the advertiser and making sure there's no more adpocalypse. And, you know, as they're creating more and more TV products, you know, YouTube TV itself as a kind of skinny bundle uh, equivalent to cable, you know, the TV screen is their fastest growing screen. So I just see, you know, YouTube almost becoming more like a Netflix than a than a TikTok on the, the kind of spectrum of user generated to kind of media, traditional media generated content. So that's certainly my, that was my prediction. And I think that's only going to kind of cement itself as this year plays out. Yeah, it definitely feels like um, the the days of user-generated permanent content is starting to get, you know, is starting to wane off. And it's just, you know, we're seeing that what I find interesting is that these platforms have enabled user-generated content, right? And which has taken away a lot of the audience from traditional publishing companies, websites, and They've ad- adopted them as well, but they've become the bit- biggest critics of this thing. So as soon as something happens, like, you know, all the, let's just say, you know, the crap that's been happening over, the, that's been highlighted by the media over the last few months, over the last couple of years, it's not new. It's been happening since the start. It's just that for some reason, the media has all of a sudden, like, really grasped into it as this way to really highlight how dangerous quote-unquote dangerous these platforms are so obviously they all have to sort of find ways to retreat that being said i have to agree with tom it's like there's definitely a feeling of the creator being sort of put more and more aside or put you know put in the corner and sort of like going to be more and more isolated and maybe YouTube's going to split itself up to more like, hey, this is where creators live. This is where, authentic, you know, real content, adult sort of like, you know, mature. When I say mature, I just mean like responsible content, you know, goes, to, you know, where, you know, sort of the Netflix style t- stuff appears. It, it's, it's a little bit sad because, you know, one of the reasons why we come to YouTube has I never I've never gone to YouTube because I wanted to see a TV show. I went to YouTube because, you know, I wanted these original and completely unique, uh, uh, you know, content creators that brought forward mukbang, that brought forward ASMR, you know, uh, all these things that I personally don't, I'm not a big fan of those formats, but I love that there's a, a, a platform for that and that people can make money and make a living off of that. And it feels like there's the, the doors are closing to those types of opportunities, specifically on YouTube. The TikToks of this world are taking up the mantle. If if YouTube closes those doors, somebody else is going to take the mantle. I don't know if it's going to be sustainable, but it, it just feels like it's a rocky space right now for anybody creating original content and using YouTube as their as their primary platform. Some of that creation activity seems to have turned into or has evolved into the space of live streaming, right? So we saw in Q1 that both Twitch and YouTube reported record uh, watch time for for live broadcasts. What do you think is the future of the live streaming space? Even though they're both technically live, I think the the definition or the the reality of a live stream on YouTube compared to a live stream on Twitch is completely different. So when I think of a a Twitch live stream, it's going to be gaming, maybe poker, 
is what I would watch it for because I'm a nerd. Um, but there will be some gaming live stream on Facebook, but a lot of it is just going to be kind of like Q&A stuff or a lot of it will be like, you know, the most famous live stream of all, you know, 24-7 lo-fi hip-hop live stream or 24-7 Peppa Pig or Mr. Bean or whatever it is. I don't think that YouTube provides a real live experience they uh, they they provide a a 24 7 stream which is you know as, like almost like a linear feed but not necessarily live so i actually i see twitch really being the juggernaut going forward when it comes to true live esports and um you know a, appointment to view live shall we say as as opposed to stuff that just happens to be delivered as a live stream but is not even uh, necessarily live. I, I think YouTube have got a lot more to do in terms of monetizing the way that live works. They've got super chats and stuff, but the fact that you can only manually kind of insert mid-rolls into a, a live stream is, it seems like a gaping hole in terms of uh, technical capability, which which needs to be overcome. But generally, I'd say that, you know, Twitch, uh, with all of Amazon's might be, behind it, is um, could really be a, a massive next twelve months for Twitch. Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to sort of predict. I do think that live is going to be a hot potato. Uh, last week's thing with uh, last week's issues with the Notre Dame burning and you know the algorithm you know recommending other you know 9/11 videos sort of caused a little bit of an issue with that and it feels like you know again all the all the the, the mass shootings and stuff where people are using these platforms for very nefarious reasons so the live streaming stuff feels just like it's also on a a sort of weird sort of situation where these platforms are going to have to find ways to sort of vet the people live streaming. They're going to have to find better ways to not just let anybody decide to live stream. YouTube has, you know, in the past, you know, you needed uh, to get specific things set up on your channel. You can just start live streaming tomorrow. But it feels like the restraining that, that they're going to have to sort of like create a, a more professional way to sort of let people live stream. And it's here to stay. So, you know, people are going to find different ways to sort of use it. Again, the examples that Tom said are perfect. They're sort of like, who would have thought to create, you know, a, a, a 24 seven uh, Peppa Pig uh, channel on linear television, but it happens on YouTube. Yeah. And I think YouTube in the last, I'd say two or three weeks have announced that you can't stream on mobile anymore unless you've got a thousand subscribers. So it looks like they are starting to tighten those reins on who can stream and who can't. Since you guys are both such audience development and channel management experts, I thought in addition to sharing some strategies for beginners, what are some tips that you might uh, want to share with those who are a little bit more advanced? Maybe some of the other experts out there who follow your work or are constantly experimenting on YouTube. What are some of the new things that you're testing out that you, know, you think have a lot of promise? Um, so for me, it's not new, but it's probably new to a lot of people. It's uh, I've been really surprised at the reaction to some of my talks about it but um keyword research um so i've kind of developed a system over the last seven years where i've got it down to a to a bit of a science and it's really really effective in essence you know the, the tldr is 
finding key terms on YouTube that people are searching for in high volumes but are being underserved by competition. Uh, and then taking those terms and making content that targets that and then optimizing your metadata around that. So your titles, tags, descriptions to try and become the authority for, for those high opportunity keywords. Apologies if you can hear my kids shout in the background. <laughs> it's bath time here in the Martin household, so apologies. Uh, they're probably watching the 24-7 Kevin Fig live stream at the same time as well. <laughs> so, yeah, keyword research for me is um, like it's been my secret weapon for the last seven years, and I've only ever really spoke about it with the, the people that have worked directly beneath me. Um, but now I've started to speak about it, and as I say, I've got a course coming out about it. Um, it should have already been out by now, but it should be out in the next the next uh, month. So, really excited to 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 see that find a wider audience and see how people use it. Yeah, I think my my sort of like take in terms of going forward and sort of continuing to build an audience is. It's a little bit, uh, you know, I kind of like what uh, Daryl Eves has been doing with sort of like getting back in touch with the community. And that's something that has been lost over the last couple of years. As YouTube came in and tried to take a hold and tried to sort of like become part of the community, it's sort of like, it's sort of like made people stop trying on their own. You know, there was a time where, you know, YouTube meetups, YouTuber organized meetups was more common and people would like help each other more and it just seems to have disappeared it just seems to the camaraderie seems to be gone and that needs that's what essentially helped build all these sort of like youtubers in the past and i feel like you know there's that there's uh you know there's also the you know the niche niche content right like okay you know unboxing videos used to be niche it's no longer niche. So where can you go or what can you do to build uh, an audience if you want to still do unboxings, but, you know, you want to make yourself original? Well, there's verticals to go into. There's different types of, 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 of technology or, or type, the type of products that you can focus on. So I think that's one of the things that I would say, you know, to sort of like look into if you're, you know, somebody who's already been creating content, maybe seeing a little bit of a, sort of a drop or you know of, of things that are not working uh, like they used to anymore because maybe you've become too generalist and every you know when there's 20,000 or no, sorry 100,000 or a million other YouTubers doing the same type of content well how are you going to become different you need to sort of find that niche that brought you to all the big creators out there started in a very very niche subject or a very niche type of format that has been adopted by others and then, you know, they sort of lose ground because everybody else has come in and, and copied their format. And, you know, some of them don't realize that that's happening and they just keep going. Then they keep complaining that their videos are going, their views are going down and down and down. Well, you know, you need to sort of refocus and find something that excellent you're passionate about. And, you know, that has a niche that nobody else is serving. That's a perfect segue into the question I ask everyone on the podcast, uh, which is, you know, thinking about the niche spaces out there, the new opportunities. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? Uh, I am starting a new business in the digital media space today. Uh, so I'm basically um, trying to sub-license existing content to distribute on emerging platforms, including YouTube. So I know that there's a need for companies out there that don't have in-house resource 
to exploit rights which are just sitting on the shelf somewhere collecting dust, which is perfect for YouTube's want for this type of brand safe, long form content. So I'm trying to go out there and sub-license, buy up old content. So if there's anyone listening to this that's sitting on some dusty old tapes in a warehouse of an old TV show, please get in contact with me uh, at channel underscore fuel on Twitter or Tom at channelfuel.co. And I'd be happy to talk about taking some of that off of your hands or doing some kind of joint venture. But it just seems like there's so much content that's been created over the years Mm -hmm. that is just sitting in somebody's basement um, and setting that free and making that available on YouTube and on Pluto TV and on Amazon Prime is just like a no-brainer for me. So, I would say um, I would say try to focus on quality, creating long-form quality content that can go beyond one platform. One of the things that you know you're seeing does there, and you know I think Tom's business ideas is great, and uh, there's a demand out there. But if tomorrow I wanted to create content and I wanted to sort of like build a future business for myself. I'd find a way to to make content that can be distributed beyond just like the, the digital platforms because we're starting to see, when I say digital, I mean to use a generate digital platforms, what we're starting to see is that everybody and their uncle is launching a streaming platform, a paid for streaming platforms. And uh, not everybody is going to be able to create enough content for those platforms. And, you know, they're going to need to license a lot of content to build audiences. Disney's coming in. You can name the network these days who's launching a streaming, a paid for streaming platform. And, you know, if you want to make money these days, you're in, in the media industry, you have to create content that people are willing to pay for. On one end, they're marketing platforms. On one other end, they're distribution platforms. On the other end, they're audience you know, audience uh, or social social platforms. So I would say use these platforms strategically to whatever goals you have in the long end, right? It's not just about views on YouTube. It's about, okay, when people view your content, what do they do beyond just watching it? You know, build a business off that content. There's a bunch of different directions you should be going other than just becoming YouTube famous. Great advice. Tom, where can people find out more about you and more about Channel Fuel? Yeah, so you can find me at channelfuel.co, channelfuel.co. So that's where I offer all of my professional consultancy uh, training services. Uh, And if you are interested in the course, which is coming out very soon, uh, the keyword research course, you can find that at channelfuel.co forward slash course. And Carlos, where can people find out more about you and more about Truly? Uh, trulyinc.com is uh, our website. You can see our case studies, the clients we work in. Uh, you also have our podcast, Anatomy of a Strategy podcast on every single podcast platform, as well as obviously the Video Insiders podcast for, with me and Tom. And we'd love to have you on as soon as possible, James, because you know we're a video industry podcast and to me james you are mr video industry uh whenever i think of like the industry track at vidcon or something similar anywhere in the world i know i'm going to find james crease there so uh yeah we'd love to we'd love to have you on to talk about what you think is the the future of the video industry 
Well, thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate that. Would love to. So can't wait to come on Video Insiders very soon. Encourage everyone out there to, to give it a listen. Carlos and Tom, as you've, as you've heard, are a wealth of knowledge and expertise. So I uh, strongly encourage you to check out their work. Uh, look into the course Tom's working on. Check out the, the podcast as well as what Carlos is doing at Truly and, and on his podcast, Anatomy of Strategy. So thank you both for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun for me and, and great to hear a little bit more about what you two are up to. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for having us, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.